curiosities well here it is December already or perhaps I should say at last personally I cannot wait for this year to finally be over I may never fully get over the loss of Bowie only one more sordid ordeal to go through before the year's end You know what it is. Christmas. All that enforced merriment. I cannot stand it, I tell you. Look at them all out there. Shopping for their useless gifts. Singing inane carols. Baking ostensibly festive treats for their neighbors. Does anyone ever send me a plate of holiday cookies? Certainly not. No one recalls old Osgood once Halloween is in the past. When one needs shrunken heads to slip into a tub full of bobbing apples, I'm a very popular fellow. But when it comes time to sharing joy and goodwill with one's neighbors... <sighs> the worst thing of all about the holiday season? Children. If there is one thing I cannot abide, it is children in the gallery. I've spent an incredible amount of my long life collecting this multitude of curious artifacts, and I shall not see them destroyed by the sticky, chubby fingers of ignorant little children. Now, tonight's story comes to us from John Longenbaugh. Mr. Longenbaugh is a Seattle-based writer and playwright and the creator of the steampunk adventure Serial Brass, which is available as an audio drama, a series of stage plays, and a short film. And, for fans of Brass, there will be a second season. For more on John, visit him at johnlongenbaugh.com. For more on Brass, visit battlegroundproductions.org. The author will be reading his own work this evening. The Boy Proof Watch by John Longenbach One. Professor Davenant Masculine consorted with spirits and lived with automatons. The public visited his mechanical theater in droves, and certain wealthy patrons had seen the inside of his workshop but no one ever called upon him at home. He was too frightening. Some men seek to assume the facade of Mephistopheles, going through canisters of mustache wax and a wardrobe full of red silk shirts to personate the devil. Such spiritual braggarts rarely achieve any effect greater than mockery. But Professor Masculine looked like Satan all the time. 
Even in the bathtub, his long, oily black hair and trimmed Van Dyke threaded into sharp points. His triangular, crafty face had a natural reddish tint, and on hearing his deep, sinister laugh, one half expected a sinuous tail with a barbed end to dart out from behind his frock coat. Modern thinkers suggest that the facade makes the man as much as the man makes the facade. A man like the professor might have begun his life with the soul of a saint, but when you sport the look of a lean vice from a pageant play, what road is a man's character supposed to take? When babies stare and sob in your presence, when fathers clutch their adolescent daughters as you pass them on the street, when a merchant hesitates to take your coins as if fearing their heat, well, a person cultivates a certain distant attitude towards humanity. And when we first realize that the world is a cruel and dangerous place, some choose to be seen as even more cruel and dangerous than they are in self-preservation. Despite his fearsome visage, the professor was in demand in society. He was a dabbler in obscure areas of knowledge and a master of the rare discipline of clockwork, understanding it not just as a scientist, but as an artist. His automatons, many of which featured in nightly performance in his theater, were an astonishing mechanical company that danced, strutted, declaimed and sang on the specially designed stage. What's more, his mechanizations performed their tasks with flair and personality. His patented mechanical rat-catcher ended each massacre by curling up and cleaning the blood off its fangs and razor-covered limbs with an oiling mechanism located in its mouth, raising each limb to lap exactly like a cat washing itself. His mechanical housemaids chuckled appreciatively if you slapped their brass bottoms. And his mechanical parrots not only flew around the room and pecked birdseed from your hand, but repeated random phrases overheard from their owners in high, tinny voices. His ingenuity made him rich, and his genius made him alluring. Only one aspect of his personality was controversial. He hated children. Best not to say he was cruel to them. No one had ever seen him raise a hand to a child, even when it was the abominable Ashton twins. During their mother's dinner party, they had escaped their German nanny and snuck under the dining room table to burst forth screaming during the asparagus soup. Masculine had leapt up with a start, only to discover his shoelaces tied, tumbling him with a thud at the feet of the master butler. Nevertheless, Mrs. Ashton received a lovely silver bracelet a week later, along with a short note of thanks for the invitation and the matter seemed settled. But for the next month, the twins complained separately and together of monsters hiding under the bed and behind the curtains, particularly a demonic monkey who squeaked when it walked and watched them with glowing red eyes as they slept. After Eustace had a screaming fit and Clovis had stopped eating, the pair were packed off to a boarding school in Trieste, where they were said to have happily reestablished their reign of terror. Weeks later, the upstairs maid noticed that the curtains of the room and low sections of the wainscoting had strange dottings of dark oil. She blamed the detestable boys for the mess and said nothing to her mistress. 2. Each day at 4.40, Masculine left his office above the mechanical theater and descended to the lobby to discuss the evening's program with the ushers, confectioners, and box office staff. He would receive reports from the stagehands and then, reminding the stage manager to have the show report waiting on his desk the next morning, he would straighten his coat, don his top hat, and walk home. 
When his key had been inserted into the front gate, the gas lamps of his house would ignite, and as he walked the path to the front door, the deer, rabbits, and other woodland sculptures would turn to watch him, bowing their heads slightly in deference. They were far less docile to unauthorized visitors. In the anteroom, his doorman, an early, unnamed creation, would take his coat with one hand, his hat with the other, and present him with a freshly mixed gin and tonic with the other. Then, assuming that he didn't pass an umbrella to its fourth hand, it would revert to the form of a coat rack. As he walked through the door of his study, the player pyrophone in the corner would begin its program of Mozart etudes, the bar of orange flame of the fire organ undulating with the music, casting a lively dance of shadows across the room. He would sit and read the newspaper fetched for him by his automatic paper, slipper, and ball fetcher, which would then lie curled at his feet. At seven o'clock, the dinner chime would ring and he'd proceed to the dining room, where his clockwork staff would serve the meal they had prepared. There were never less than three, and sometimes as many as eight of these automatons, depending on the menu. Across the table might scuttle a small mechanical, intent on keeping his wine glass filled, while draped around the chandelier above, a sinuous, segmented artifice would spin its internal spice rack at his request and shake vigorously where he pointed. The other, more human-shaped automatons, moved to and from the kitchen, delivering courses and taking away empty plates and silverware. Occasionally there were accidents, food spilled or poorly prepared or other irregularities. When this happened, Masculine would pull a small silver notebook from his vest pocket and make a note for future repair and refinement. After dinner, he would climb the stairs to his workshop in the airy, where he made the fine adjustments and detailed processes that transformed articulated metal into authentic creations. For it was here that he performed the infinitely minute labor of clockwork and the much more mysterious task of imbuing it with spirit. For all of his wide reading and experience, the greatest lesson of clockwork that Masculine had learned was as a young apprentice. The most accomplished masters always left a small space in their mechanisms, right in the midst of the gears, cogs, pillars, and pinions. This tiny gap in the machinery was, he was told, to be filled with something immaterial, traditionally a personal wish that the watchsmith would whisper into the mechanism. But in Masculine's creations... What was stuffed in the space was a gauzy piece of almost nothing that he kept stored in a small silver flask. The spiritualists call this substance ectoplasm, a near-transparency they believe is the materialized essence of the spirits of the dead. Masculine, who had seen more ectoplasm and put it to greater use than the most celebrated medium, considered this a foolish misidentification. He believed that this translucent material, fragile as a spider web and with even less weight, was astral ephemera, the foam of an invisible sea, and entirely unrelated to the soul or any other human matters. Yet he also knew that when placed in a mechanism, the material provided an indefinable vitality that made his inventions nonpareil. His method of collecting ectoplasm was inspired by shipwrecked mariners in sun-scorched seas who capture precious fresh water by filling a cup with seawater and collecting the drops of condensation that gather on its sides. In a similar fashion, he created an object to collect the condensation of the astral realm. In the center of a glass orb, he had placed an artificial icon, an abstract symbolic sculpture of gold, silver, and brass. The object was devoid of specific meaning, masculine, 
was rigorously uninterested in religious matters, but the design and material mimicked those of traditional iconography. When charged with electricity, over hours the icon would accrete a layer of fine dust which would gradually begin to grow webs, then a tissue, and finally a gossamer-thin covering of translucent material. This was the ectoplasm, which he cut with a slender silver knife and then captured with a tiny silver net to store in his flask. A minute amount of the substance went into the ticking heart of every one of the professor's creations. On this particular September night with which we are concerned, a windy and warm evening filled with flying leaves, Masculine was engaged in this very process, bent over his workbench, loop held in his monocle eye, slicing the misty stuff with the care of a pauper into his last orange, when he heard the ringing of a tiny bell. It was soft yet very distinct. It had to be in a house filled with bells and chimes. It was insistent, and it told the professor that he was no longer the only living thing in his house. There was an intruder. Three. Masculine, as we have said, was a man of fearsome aspect, and was as dangerous as he looked. His elegant clothes bristled with weapons. Under his hat brim was a rounded razor, his shoes produced spikes with a heel click, and his walking stick was armed at both tip and handle. There were no less than three small pistols on him at any time, so when he rose from his work table, he was unhurried and deliberate. He walked down the side of the stairs to avoid creaks and into the hall where a large teak cabinet stood, the source of the peeling bell. He opened the cabinet's doors to reveal a detailed map of his house, with all three floors in the basement outlined in copper wire. This was the auto-electro-domicile perimeter monitor, commissioned for the Premier of Canada, though its inventor had installed the prototype in his own home. The copper wire surrounding the outline of the house glowed a dull red in one area, revealing the breach down at a bank of basement windows. The map didn't include the grounds, the first perimeter of his security. Anything larger than a squirrel or crow that entered his estate was set upon without warning by the assorted statuary, and anything slower than a cat would almost certainly be killed. The neighborhood felines had learned that there was nothing but chase and fear within those dark gates. Usually he descended to the basement workshop via the kitchen stairs, but ingenuity and caution had led Masculine to include hidden paths throughout his home, so instead he continued down the hallway to the library. On the way he passed several automatons that sat, hung, or stood motionless. Several could be activated for protective measures, but for now he preferred nothing moving in his house except for himself and his uninvited visitor. In the library, he crossed to the middle of the six tall bookcases curved round the spherical room. Well aware of the cliché of bookcases that revolved or slid aside to reveal a hidden door, he had decided, for his amusement as much as anything, on a different construction. He grabbed the middle shelves hard and yanked upwards, and the entire bookcase slid with counterbalanced ease into the ceiling, revealing a dark doorway. He struck his stick sharply on the ground, and the handle burst into a white-hot flame, both an excellent source of illumination and a formidable weapon. Descending the steps to a blank wall, his fingers deftly found the small hidden catch. With a light groan, the doorway slid open. Must make sure that's oiled, he thought to himself, and he was in the basement. It was a vast room, 
When Maskelyne had met with his architect, his original instructions had been for both a basement and a sub-basement, as he was a man with many projects, and even more secrets. Instead, the architect had persuaded him to a single deep cellar large enough to require excavation under a portion of his back lawn. Arranged in orderly rows throughout the room were tables on which rested automatons in various stages of repair, each covered with a thick white sheet to protect her from dust. To someone of even moderate imagination it resembled a morgue, but on such matters masculine had practically no imagination at all. He made his way over to the bank of windows that had been indicated on the auto-electro-domicile perimeter monitor, alert as an owl. He held the stick up, and its brilliant white light revealed an open window above, its latch hanging. The window was low and narrow, made even less accessible by two thick iron bars. It would take a flexible frame indeed to wriggle through such a small opening. He stepped back and moved the light to examine the room. There was no motion, no sound. The unvarying white flame of his walking stick shuffled the shadows of the sheets on the tables, and he saw that on one of them the sheet was lying crookedly. It was not in his nature to leave anything uneven, so he crossed and in one motion grabbed a corner and threw it back. Revealed was a mechanical stupid pavement scrubber. He had not managed to cure it of a tendency to also ferociously scrub small domestic animals. Roughly the size of a barrel hoop and only twice as thick, the scrubber's differential equation center, a panel on the left side of its hood, had been opened for the inventor's tinkering. He now saw that it was closed. He reopened the panel. His most recent work had been completely undone. Wires, gears, and cogs that he had painstakingly rearranged after the scrubber's recent encounter with a beloved Pomeranian had been shifted by an unknown hand. He was even fairly certain that several components were missing. He swung around, stick raised and ready, his face reddening. Masculine guarded his art as an eagle guards its eggs, and when his work left his shop, the maintenance panels were welded shut. His client's contracts always included a lengthy clause stating penalties for unauthorized tinkering. Whoever had been here had been poking his fingers into the proprietary genius of a very dangerous man. He turned his light on the ground next to the table. A recent incident with a patented articulated chimney serpent had left traces of soot on sections of the floor, and he saw footprints leading from the table to the floor under the window. Prints coming and going, suggesting that the intruder had entered from the window and had escaped via the same route. The evidence of the small footprints was conclusive. Masculine's intruder was his natural nemesis. A boy. Four. The next morning, Masculine was in his office, pretending to look over the month's financials, while compiling a list of possible suspects. The list was descriptive, as Masculine had no idea of any of his suspects' names. There was the butcher boy and the son of one of the servants across the street. Gardner's child? There were the two brothers down the block, though he was fairly sure that one was scarcely out of his pram, and the other had recently headed to college. There was the boy who sometimes lived with the De La Ruches and their two daughters three doors down. A cousin, perhaps? Though he seemed to be present only during the summer months. He had much research to do. He'd never bothered to learn the names or relationships of any of his younger neighbors, let alone any of the assorted gutter snipes who roamed the nearby streets. Frankly, he never had a reason for noting their individual qualities. 
His musings were interrupted by a tepid knocking at his door, the door which was wide open. Masculine staff knew their master's temper well, and treaded softly even while trying to get his attention. The grease-stained yet pallid figure standing at the doorway of his office was Murch, his chief automaton craftsman. Murch was obedient and observant, if not particularly bright, and his exalted position meant that, more often than not, he was charged with bringing bad news. Masculine swiveled in his chair to regard him. "'I'm afraid I have some unpleasant information, sir, the nature of which is serious enough to warrant my appearance in this office at this time, so as to provide you with full details of said information, despite the fact that seeing as it is unpleasant is not information that you will probably want to hear.' Murch routinely wrapped bad news in this sort of fulsome speech like a cherry round a pit. Masculine nodded for him to continue. It seems, sir, that the Egyptian fortune teller is in serious need of repair. What's wrong with it? Murch shifted feet uneasily. Perhaps I could speak as to the probable cause and potential solutions as we proceed from here to the automaton in question. That is, if you could spare a few minutes for such an examination. Masculine sighed and rose. One of his first masterpieces, the Egyptian fortune-teller sat in a glass booth in the lobby. When a coin was fed into the slot, it cast hieroglyphic runes, and its sonorous voice would divine the meaning of the fortune, dispensing a small piece of rolled papyrus with a prayer taken from the Book of the Dead. It was a popular attraction, and there was always a queue of eager querents awaiting their fortunes. Though his skill had advanced far beyond the swarthy automaton, Masculine retained a fondness for it. The voice of the oracle was his own, recorded over several days on wax cylinders. In a nearly sentimental corner of his heart, he was proud of the fortune-teller, not just for the clockwork movements, but the ingenuity, the philosophy that it represented. It reminded him of his youthful ambition, a very different sort than that of a middle-aged master of his craft. As they reached the lobby, Birch was still explaining. Awaken sort of first, sir. Notice that the queue to the Egyptian was getting awfully long, at which point a small child came up and tugged at his coat until he asked the urchin what was the matter. Some unknown child, not, we must assume, the child speaking to Wiggins, had stuffed several caramels above, under, and through the coin slot in the machine. Frankly, sir, seeing the resulting sugary muck, and please do excuse my strong language, sir, I have believed that the child must have had access to some sort of crucible and an independent eat source to create such a catastrophe. The automaton stood in the foyer to the left of the life-size portrait of Masculine himself, painted three years ago following his triumphant return from his world tour. Ordinarily, the fortune-teller's eyes glowed with an eerie green light, but now the right eye blazed bright emerald while the left was completely dark, and the mechanical arm that picked up and tossed the hieroglyphic runes was twitching and tapping the glass in a spasmodic fashion. Masculine gave the hatch cover a clever twist and it came open. Inside he saw a wet brown river running down from the coin box into the gears at three different places with a sticky film covering cogs, pins, and gears as deep as he could see. The entire mechanism would have to be replaced, and he had no schematic other than memory. Masculine rose to his feet. He stared in the face of his crippled creation as its fingers continued to tap erratically at the glass. Merch. Sir? Shut him down, pack him up, and have him delivered to my home workshop this afternoon. I will leave now to prepare for it, and you will chair the meeting of the theater staff at 440. 
Absolutely, sir. Make sure to tell the stage manager that I expect a full show report on my desk tomorrow morning. Oh, yes, sir. As Masculine began to leave the room, he added, Oh, and merch. Sir? Tell the theatre confectioners that the services are no longer required. Prepare them each a final pay packet. We shall have no more suites of any sort for sale in the lobby, in the theatre, or anywhere near our premises. And with that he was gone, leaving the unfortunate merch to his tasks. 5. Masculine made the rounds of his neighborhood that afternoon, calling at every residence in a three-block radius of his house. He knocked on each door and explained, top hat deferentially doffed, that as a gesture of autumnal goodwill he was offering his neighbors free tickets to his mechanical theater. This would, of course, normally exclude the servants, but they were welcome as well, with their tickets reserved for a night separate from their employers to avoid embarrassment. He simply required the names and ages of each of the home's residents, information that he noted in his little silver notebook. Despite his thoroughness, the results were unpromising. His neighbor's gardener's son, it turned out, was now away at boarding school thanks to an ambitious father. And as suspected, the De La Ruches down the street only hosted dear cousin Jack during the summer holidays, and besides were preoccupied with the recent death of one of the parents though he was too polite to ask the maid which one. The rest of his neighbors had no sons or had boys either too young or old to be likely suspects. It had been an expensive investigation, he mused, looking over his notes. He'd be giving away a lot of tickets in the next month. When he returned to his home, the large wooden crate with the Egyptian fortune-teller had arrived and stood on the sidewalk, attended by two of his mechanics. He opened the gate, and they followed him through to the front door, struggling with the load and eyeing the lawn ornaments whose heads ominously followed them. Masculine engaged the porch lift, and as they lowered the crate to the basement, he walked the grounds with tool kit in hand, looking for signs of a malfunction in his decorative sentinels. Aside from a delicate fawn whose hidden barbs needed oiling, they were all in working order. He returned to find the two mechanics still on the porch, petrified, as he hadn't told them that the ornaments had been switched to observe. He would have scolded them for their timidity, but there had been a few incidents involving employees and automatons in the past decade resulting in injury, but not, he reminded them, death. They nodded, then hurried out of the gate as if fearing it might shut them in permanently. He entered the house, set the sentinels, and realized that it was past six and his entire evening's routine was off. The ice had melted in his gin and tonic, and there was no time to do more than glance at the newspaper's headlines before dinner. As if affected by their master's mood, the kitchen staff produced a meal both undercooked and overspiced, with a low point a warmed romaine salad draped listlessly over whitefish. Leaving his meal half-eaten, Masculine ascended to his airy workshop. He turned up the gas lamp over the workbench, revealing two differential equation centers and an experimental oil regulator, and at the back of the bench an invention that had sat there for months, an etheric navigator. The device was intended to increase his nightly yield of ectoplasm by crudely mapping the visible world for richer currents of the stuff, yet so far it was sporadic and unreliable, and when switched on the colored lights on the console sparked feebly and in no clear pattern. He walked to the window and surveyed the warm September night. Outside the glow of the porch lamps, most of the grounds were in darkness, 
He pulled the curtains shut, knowing that the light from the room would continue to illuminate them. Then instead of returning to his seat, he crept silently down the stairs, into the kitchen, and finally into the basement. Moving in the darkness, he took a seat in a wooden chair against one wall, facing the bank of windows through which his visitor had entered the night before. He felt certain that having visited once without being caught, the boy would come again. After all, he had been a boy once, a tremendously destructive one. When scarcely more than a toddler in the orphanage, he had dismantled and destroyed clocks, watches, kitchen appliances, gardener's tools, the laundry's mangler, the headmaster's trousers press, the kitchen's dumbwaiter, and the orphanage's furnace before the staff had wisely shipped him off to an apprenticeship with an aged watchmaker in Brussels, next to whose dour demeanor the gray, rain-soaked buildings of that city were practically florid. The man was stern and cruel and a firm believer in corporal punishment, but at least he recognized in his student a great talent. Any moron can destroy. Rise above your bastard beginnings, boy, and learn to create, he would tell him between beatings. When Masculine began to learn his craft, he was sometimes so absorbed that he would work far past dinner. The clockmaker, who at least didn't starve the child, would leave him a tray of congealing stew. Solitude is the inevitable companion of genius, he would quote, turning the key in the lad's lock, shutting the boy in for the night. This night reminded him of those in its sense of purpose, for tonight he was sure he would meet his nemesis. He thought of the long road from obscure apprentice driven by anger and loneliness to world-renowned master, a man of power and triumph. Now at the height of his art, some awful boy was smearing his pudgy fingers into the inner workings of his mechanisms. It was as if the disgusting, hopeless creature he had once been had returned to destroy his work now, and it would not be tolerated. He heard a bell ringing. It was the same bell he'd heard the night before, yet the windows before him remained closed. He threw open the doors of the perimeter monitor and saw that the copper wire glowed red at the window of his library. He rushed into the room and saw the open window, but nothing else was amiss. He pulled out the derringer kept in his right waistcoat lining, his nerves quietly humming, and began his hunt. Up in his eerie workshop, he saw that the etheric navigator had been pulled forward to the front of his workbench and his lensing station set over it. The lights on the machine's console now glowed steadily. The boy had been here, and left this, his handiwork, a boast of his proficiency. It was an insult, and he knew now that there could be no mercy. He would have his revenge. I shall catch him, he said, leaving the workshop. He would, of course, check the rest of the house, but he felt sure that having completed this taunting vandalism, the boy had left. I shall catch him, he repeated in a low tone, for I shall create a trap. He cannot resist. I shall create a boy-proof watch. 6. The next morning, Masculine sent his patented mechanical courier to his staff, with a note saying he would be out of the office for the remainder of the week. They would assume he was repairing the Egyptian fortune-teller, but he didn't so much as uncrate that venerable automaton. Instead, he skipped breakfast, told his bedside clock to inform the kitchen he wanted a full carafe of black coffee, and walked to the upper workshop as his clock scampered downstairs to deliver his message. 
Once in his workshop, he pulled out a large bottle of superior brandy, poured just a bit more than was required to wet the sides of his glass, and sat at his drafting table. This was his favorite method of creation, alternating the stimulant of the coffee with the depressive qualities of the alcohol, keeping him awake yet not jittery, relaxed but not clumsy, setting his talent like a precision tool. His head and hands floated slightly above silver through the day, aided by the alertness of an empty stomach. Masculine designed through free association, with the lines on the paper beginning before he knew what their form might be. A curve would become a spring, a line, a pin, a doodle, a gear. He worked quickly and fluidly, with no regard to the time or amount of paper used. A boy-proof watch had long been in his imagination. More than all of the other reasons that he hated children, their noisiness, their messiness, the deference paid to them by indulgent parents, was their uncanny ability to destroy delicate machinery. More than once, tallying up repairs required by tiny hands and cunning, if undeveloped minds, he had consulted his ledger to see if his theater could operate with no children in the audience. But no matter how he adjusted the numbers, it couldn't. That didn't mean he encouraged their attendance. A prerequisite of all of his staff was that they were both childless and discouraged from showing affection for children. While it was not in his nature to tolerate discourtesy, he had let go certain employees who were too sentimental towards the younger patrons. Lunch sat ignored on a side tray, and before he looked up from his drawings it had been joined by a dinner tray also grown cold. Inspiration had sat next to him through the day and night, and having decided on this invention, it eagerly awaited his discovery. He had years of salvage work to draw from, clocks and machines and automatons all returned after being crippled or killed by boys, and there were his own memories of inspired destruction, of impromptu pry bars and objects conveyed to parapets for rapid and fatal descent. The challenge was devising a casing strong enough, a mechanism sturdy enough, and a form captivating enough to snare the eye of any boy, and then resist every stratagem every tool of his small hands and malevolent mind. Faced with such a challenge, even the greatest of Masculine's creations had proved but a Goliath facing David's sling. Don found him working on his final draft. The bell in the hallway cabinet had stayed silent all night. After a few hours' sleep, he ordered another full carafe of coffee and began again, now gathering the plates, pins, screws, wheels, pinions, and springs required. He laid out the minuscule inventory in meticulous order, for there is no approximate in watchmaking. Then he began assembling the gear trains, the escapement, and eventually the balance and hairspring, not only reinforcing each element, but building in secondary fail-safe mechanisms. By the time he fell into bed eighteen hours later, he had given the tiny mechanical engine a single key wind and heard it tick with an even amplitude. While he had worked and while he slept, the bell in the hallway cabinet remained silent. When he rose at noon, he took breakfast to settle his stomach, then descended to the basement. He had instructed his workshop mechanicals to heat the forge before he slept as he planned to use for the casing the new Wolfram alloy he'd been sent by a colleague in Schaffhausen. While he was unsure at what temperature it was workable, he knew it would have to be very hot indeed. The next few hours were frustrating and so infernal in temperature as to reduce the eternally sanguine masculine to curses in his undershirt. 
Much of the alloy was wasted, and several tools were rendered useless. But by that evening he had finally completed the case. By midnight he was again at his airy workbench, delicately setting the mechanism into its grayish-white casing. Then he reached under the workbench, and with a deft movement undid a tiny latch. Out of a hidden drawer he retrieved a small silver tinderbox. On it was written, I have myself passed through the fire. I have smelt the smell of fire. He reached inside and pulled out a tiny bright red seed and placed it on the workbench before him. This was a seed from a salamander blossom, gained by Masculine through a convoluted series of trades with various antiquarians. It was a subject of study by scholars throughout Europe, who noted that whatever was the eventual product of the seed, for no one had ever claimed to see so much as a root tip or a shoot emerge from the tiny scarlet casing, it had certain remarkable physical properties. When exposed to a spark, it would explode into a flame of astonishing heat. Masculine had discovered in his own experiments that when encased in ectoplasm, the flame would burn even hotter and with greater duration. He pulled out his silver flask and extracted a small amount of that near-intangible substance with silver tweezers, then used them to wind it round the seed. Using the same tweezers, he inserted it deep into the mechanical heart of the watch. With a minuscule brush and precise care, he painted around this gauzy substance with phosphorus paint, highly reactive and flammable. As it dried, he took two pieces of flint, each no longer than an infant's fingernail, and inserted them resting next to each other in the watch's frame. Now was the most delicate part of the operation. Carrying both halves down to the basement, he heated a tiny amount of solder on his forge, and then drew it around in a thin line the interior edge of the watch's casing. Working quickly, but with infinite care, he brought the casing to set against the watch's back, holding his breath. To his relief, there was no combustion. But there would be if the case was ever forced open. He was sure of that. Indeed, he calculated that the resulting explosion would injure any person foolish enough to try. While the case cooled, he pulled out a blank watch box. In his florid yet supremely legible handwriting, he wrote, The Boyproof Watch. When it cooled, he would place the watch in the box and the box on his workbench. Then he would wait. 7. When Masculine woke the next day, it was late morning, so he sent an order to his kitchen for brunch, a word that caused his clock some confusion and two different trips to the kitchen to confirm. Nevertheless, the culinary staff succeeded in the unorthodox meal admirably, and as he polished off the last bit of smoked salmon frittata and crisp bacon, he considered making brunch a regular feature, perhaps on weekends. On leaving his house, he considered not activating his garden sentinels, but decided against it. His enemy must not suspect the trap, so as near as he could, he would stick to his routine. It was Monday, and his absence had created piles of work, but he could scarcely concentrate on any of it. Invoices, playbill design, construction and repair orders were scanned and brushed aside. He left his office and sought out merch, demanding a complete tour of the backstage and a progress report from all the mechanics. His staff was flustered and unprepared, but though he scowled, he really had little interest in their mistakes. So, though his questions were pointed, he gave no reprimands. At 4.40, when he held the daily staff meeting, his distraction was obvious, and it was the gossip of the company after his departure. 
As he approached his front door, he could hear the sound of his hallway alarm bell insistently ringing, but he entered at a steady pace. He didn't even bother to open up the cabinet and see where the security had been breached. He merely doffed his coat and hat, took his gin and tonic from the coat rack, and walked upstairs, his excitement growing with each step. The first thing he noticed was that, again, the etheric navigator had been moved on the workbench, and now the lights on its console were blinking erratically. His visitor had begun here, further meddling with the mechanism. He moved it aside impatiently. The box with the boy-proof watch was gone. He brought his hands together in a satisfactory clasp. He hadn't dared hope that his unseen nemesis would act so quickly, but now that he had, he felt like a celebration. He practically danced down the stairs to his study, drained off his drink, and instructed the coat rack to fetch him another. That night he enjoyed a particularly fine Bordeaux from his cellars. Afterwards, Masculine lay in bed smiling and imagining his enemy's fascination and frustration with his gift. Given the skill that the boy had already demonstrated in eluding his sentinels and breaking into his home, he knew that he'd be doing more than dropping the watch down some stairs or prying at it with a jackknife. He thought back on his own childhood exercises in destruction, how he'd studied levers, hammers, screws, and joints in his attempt to crack open any number of items. He had to hand it to the boy. He suspected him of even greater talent for mischief than his own childish endeavors. But talent enough to open the watch? Even Masculine himself with his workshop, with forge, presses, weights, and drills, would find opening the cases daunting. Nothing short of that could otherwise disturb it. He felt asleep to the reassuring tick of his bedside clock. The weeks passed without event. The silver bell in the hall was silent and his work went steadily, with no further disturbances at his house, nor any items in the newspaper regarding children and explosions. Soon Masculine had returned to his work and his routine. By December, the events of the autumn were a vague memory. The Egyptian fortune teller was back at his post, gears and workings replaced and more popular than ever, thanks to certain adjustments which allowed it to stroke its crepe beard meditatively. In fact, Masculine's creative mind had been rejuvenated by the contest, and he had constructed a new act for the theater, a trapeze troupe of mechanicals who executed aerial somersaults and pirouettes of such exquisite flawlessness that he had been threatened with legal action from two local circuses claiming unfair competition. His sole mechanical frustration was the etheric navigator, which ever since its last visit from his adversary had taken to flashing its lights in a steady yet meaningless sequence not corresponding at all to the code he had developed for calculating astral longitude and latitude. Until he could determine how to fix it, he banished the mechanism to the basement. Then one early evening, the week before Christmas, he walked the snowy path to his front door and saw sitting by the porch light a small box covered in silver paper. Leading to and away from the box were small shoe prints in the snow. He hesitated a moment, then took the box inside. He placed it on a small table in his study and opened it with his fingertips gingerly. Inside was a small blue pot containing a single flower. It was of a form and color he had never seen before. The folds of a rose reimagined as flame, with bright red petals at its fringe turning orange and yellow towards its center, and in the deepest part of the blossom, just the thinnest tinge of blue. Alongside the flower was a folded letter, Dear Professor Masculine, began, in a child's careful cursive. Masculine read through the note of apology and explanation. 
Then he read it again, and then he rose and walked out the front door. Once outside, he switched on his electric torch to follow the trail of the small feet. It weaved through the grounds until it intersected with the sculpture of a winsome badger. Beneath the badger was a small pool of blood, and its razor-sharp teeth were red and still wet. From here, the footsteps were shadowed by a separate trail of drops of red. He followed these to a section of the perimeter gate. Bending close, he saw a curve in the metal ornamental structure just large enough for a small body to wiggle in and out. He felt no acceleration. Instead, an anxious nausea roiled his stomach. He backtracked to his front gate and hurried off down the street. The maid at the De La Roches who opened the door was clearly agitated. She explained that Grace, the older of the two daughters, had been injured in a sledding accident while playing, and her father had rushed her off to the nearest hospital. Within the hour, the De La Roches, father and daughter, received a visitor. Masculine doffed his hat and peered into the room. Young Grace was asleep, and her skin was even paler than her straw-blonde hair. The wound to her arm had nicked an artery and bled much, but the surgery had been successful and a doctor predicted a full recovery. Mr. De La Roche blamed himself. Ever since his wife's death several months ago, he had failed to give his daughters proper supervision, he said. And while young Iris, the very portrait of her sweet mother, was content to sit at home and perfect her needlework, Grace had taken to long and mysterious wanderings and developed an infuriating habit of examining and occasionally dismantling every piece of machinery in the house. I can't imagine where she gets such a troublesome curiosity, he told Masculine. Her mother never had any. I've told her that no man wants a woman who insists on unlocking every door and examining every mystery, but she just smiles and says, yes, papa, and then does whatever she likes. And now it's led to this, he said, waving his arm towards the small pale figure in the bed. Masculine had no words of comfort, but when the father expressed anxiety about his other daughter back at home, he suggested the man go fetch her while he himself remained watching over Grace. Her father gave the inventor a hearty handshake and grabbed his coat. As he left the room, he failed to see his daughter open one eye to note his departure, but Masculine did not, and when she closed it again, he took a chair next to her. He waited until she opened an eye again, then said, Hello, Grace. It is so pleasant to meet you at last. Two hours later, when De La Roche returned with his other daughter, all pin curls and ribbons in her fashionable gray cloak, Grace was awake and chatting with Masculine. Your daughter is quick-witted and charming, he told De La Roche, ignoring Iris entirely, and I believe that we have an affinity. I would like to offer her a position as an apprentice in my workshop. Grace, though still pale, gave her father such a heartbreakingly hopeful smile that he agreed at once. Within a week, Grace had begun her after-school apprenticeship with her neighbor, and as a first order of business, Masculine gave her a copy of the key to his front gate. There she would go, working until dinner each evening, returning home smelling of machine oil and eyes wide with learning. Will your hands ever be thoroughly clean again? her father would ask, looking at the still visible streaks of grime that traced her fingernails. Wise beyond her years, she simply smiled and said, Yes, Papa. In years to come, the relationship between master and apprentice was not always easy, for they were both strong-willed, devious, and imaginative. But on one thing they both agreed. Masculine was the greatest inventor of his age, and among his many successes, he could count the invention 
of the world's first boy-proof watch. Oh, what a tender ending. I feel an odd quivering in my chest, as if my heart were growing two sizes too large. Perhaps I should let the editors out of the basement put them to work decking these halls. But then again, perhaps not. I was rather over-generous with them at Thanksgiving, I suspect, when I tossed them in a drumstick each. I've discovered that if they are overfed, they become easily distracted and begin to complain about their lot in life. I prefer them hungry and focused. They can't even keep the show on schedule lately, so I would be hard-pressed to allow them wanton merriment. Honestly, a Halloween episode in the middle of November? Have you ever heard of such a thing? There is work to be done. Now, where was I? I do like to hear from you, my dear listeners, and believe me, it tickles my black little heart every time one of you sends me a piece of electronic mail. But would it be too much to hope for an actual physical card to hang from string on the mantle of my hearth? Or as Uncle Ozzy being too old-fashioned again. You may find us on Patreon, Facebook, WordPress, and Twitter, or send electronic mail to me personally at curiousgallery at gmail.com. This episode was produced in November of 2016 and is distributed under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution no derivatives license. Don't sell it change it, or make a transcript. Tonight's story music was by Poddington Bear. Do visit us again next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. And bring baked goods, if you would, please. I just adore biting the heads off little snowmen.